On the 10th of March 1987, the private detective Daniel Morgan was found murdered with an axe to the head in a pub car park in South London. He was a co-director of Southern Investigations, where he and his business partner, Jonathan Reese made a living passing on stories to Fleet Street. And despite the brutal and deeply distressing circumstances of his death, five police investigations and numerous charges against suspects, no one has ever been convicted of Daniel's murder. The Metropolitan Police have admitted that the first investigation into Daniel's murder was mired in corruption. And in a very bizarre turn of events, one of the senior investigating officers was arrested on suspicion of involvement only to be freed and to replace Daniel Morgan as co-director of Southern Investigations. And what's more, connections between Southern Investigations and Murdoch-owned media have come under intense scrutiny. So... This was Daniel Morgan's business partner and one-time suspect, Jonathan Rees. He went on to carry out a lot of work for the News of the World, supplying illegally obtained information about people in the public eye. He was paid £150,000 a year to do so. So according to the Byline Times, Southern Investigations became a one-stop shop for the dark arts of the press after Daniel's murder, including computer hacking, surveillance, bugs, bribing cops for information and purloining classified documents. Dave Cook was another senior investigating officer on the case, and he alleged that he and his wife were placed under surveillance by the News of the World to try and intimidate them and undermine the investigation. And a witness told detectives that Daniel Morgan, around the time of his murder, was involved in discussions with the News of the World to sell a story about police corruption, and that this could have been a motive for the crime. Jonathan Reese's main point of contact at the News of the World was Alex Marinchak, and he was once the Sunday tabloid's star crime reporter, and he then became an executive. Now, he and Jonathan Reese and everybody else deny any wrongdoing when it comes to the murder. But the case touches on high-level police corruption, billionaire press barons, and even the Leveson inquiry. And a panel which was originally convened by Theresa May will publish its report next Tuesday after having been beset by numerous delays. Joining me today to discuss all of this and more is Alistair Morgan, who is Daniel's brother and the co-author of Untold, Daniel Morgan Murder Exposed. Alistair, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Hello, Ash. No pleasure. We really appreciate your time. And we should say, for those who are unfamiliar with the case, we will do our best to explain some of the key points in this interview. But there's a lot of detail. So for the full picture, please make sure that you read Daniel's book, Untold, or listen to the podcast form of it. So can we start with some of the basics, Alistair? What do we know for sure about what happened to Daniel? Well, uh, that he was... He had arranged a meeting at the place where he was murdered, or he had agreed to meet his partner at the place where he was murdered on the night he was murdered. And it only it only emerged sometime later that he had also been there the night before. This was a place that he never normally visited and that he'd, he'd visited it the night before, but we didn't find that out until probably weeks into the first investigation because the people who met him, I think one of whom was a 
serving police officer on the squad didn't uh, tell his colleagues that they'd met Daniel there the night before. So all of the indications are that he was, is that he was set up at that place for the purpose of killing him. And uh, there was a, an investigation uh, which you mentioned, you've, you've mentioned certain important details already, Ash, so I won't go over those. But anyway, many years later, the, um, acting, the then acting commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, a man called Tim Godwin, admitted in person in front of the, Metrop the, the Metropolitan Police Authority, which was a, a governing body for the police uh, at the GLA at the time, that the first investigation had been tainted by corruption and that the, the, the powers that be had not faced up to this corruption for a very long time. I think those were his words. Now, that was, this was in 19, uh, 2011, 2011 that Tim Godwin said this. And I, I, it was refreshing to hear from the senior police officer that there had been corruption. And I'm, I'd already been shouting about that for 25 years, you know, but eventually they did agree that there had been corruption in the first inquiry. But I sim at the same time, I felt that the corruption had extended much further than that. It had gone on over several inquiries. There had been what I would describe as suspicious activities in all of the inquiries, whether by people inside or outside the squad, but inside the police, so to speak, or the news of the world. I want to come to the corruption in just a second because there's obviously so much. And when I was looking through the reports um, of what had gone on, it just seemed completely um, egregious to me. But leaving that aside yeah. for just one second, there have been lots of different motives which have been suggested for uh, Daniel's murder, one being a business dispute, another being that he was about to uh, sell a story which uh, revealed uh, police corruption involvement in drug dealing, um, others sort of would have, were suggesting a tale of, of jealousy. Could you just run through some of the big main theories about what happened? If you look at, if, if those that you mentioned there, right, all of them, uh, it could be all of these things, right? I, I uh, uh, there are certain things I know, or at least I'm, perfectly satisfied in my own mind that I know the identities of, of the people who conspired to murder my brother. I can't name them, but I'm quite certain that I know who they are. Um, after following five investigations, you know, really closely, as closely as I could, um, I think for, the, for what, what I can only kind of deduce a certain amount from the way the police have lied for so long in this case, you know? I mean, and the way they've been double dealing and lying for so long on so many things. Uh, I can only, I mean, there were allegations of police involvement in the murder. We can't get away from that. And uh, I have to say that I, 
find them entirely plausible. I can say nothing other than I will not say anything more than that. However, uh, uh, that, you know, hiding that, if you like, you know, that's my, my interpretation of the way police have been handling it. You know, if on the one hand, you have very, very serious allegations. And on the other hand, you have multiply, multiple uh, faulty or corrupt or inadequate or whatever you like to call it, investigations, you know, and you think, well, how do you square up these two things? And, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I can only, they will show me more, you know, a whole lot more detailed uh, facts about how the police handle this case. I will become privy to that eventually when I've read a, a volume as thick as my calf almost i'm sure it's it was 1200 pages you know a vast mm. volume of information and uh dealing with a lot of complicated issues but what i am at least very hopeful of is that 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 we will get to know the anatomy of the corruption the individual decision makers who did this when was that done etc 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 and then make our own this is what the public will be given and the public are quite free to mm. draw their own inferences or you know i mean there will be black certainly be black areas in the in the report or dark areas should we say where witnesses mm. did chose not to uh, speak to the panel or the panel thought it would not be even worthwhile possibly speaking to certain people Put me in your shoes for a second. So when did it become clear to you that the police investigation wasn't going as it ought to? Because I suppose lots of people would feel quite trusting that the police yeah. would do a good job with a murder, they would get to the bottom of it, and you could expect a basic yeah. degree of honesty. When was it apparent that that wasn't happening? Well, I felt unease about how what I was saying, I, I, I went up to London the very the, the same morning that I learned of my brother's murder. My, Daniel was murdered about nine o'clock or 9.30 in the evening. And I found out about it at a, probably about five o'clock the next morning. After which I very quickly made my way up to London. And, you know, I was, look, my mother, well, you know, going back to my mother, my mother told me this because she'd been contacted as Daniel's next of kin by her, by the Metropolitan Police, and they wouldn't tell her how he had died. They, they only told her that he was dead, but they wouldn't tell her what had happened to him. And yet, you know, it was pretty damned obvious what had happened to him. You know, I mean, if he's lying in the pub car park with an axe embedded in his skull to the depth of the brain stem then you know it's pretty obvious that he's been murdered and uh, so the fact that they wouldn't tell me that was enough or well, that that was the first indication that they, hey why why are they doing this and then uh i was interviewed by i went straight to the police because i had certain ideas or I, you know i thought this is uh, a possible reason it was uh, i can't go into it for legal reasons here i won't mm -hmm. but uh, I felt that they just weren't listening, you know, that they, I mean, the first interview I had, I, 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 I just learned that morning that my brother had been savagely 
murdered and I, I went into the police station at uh, Sydenham where the incident room was and the first question the police asked me when I went in there I said I'm Daniel Morgan's brother I'd like to talk to the people on the team on the, on the murder squad uh, I was introduced to a police officer and he, the first thing he did was he sort of looked at me like this and he goes and what were you doing last night that was yeah that was the the first interaction I had with the police after my brother's murder that was that was what I got you know and, and you had to approach them yeah. you had to be the one to approach them saying I want to talk to I you I wanted to help them I wanted to help mm. them I went there because I had certain ideas about the possible motive for my brother's murder uh and the people around the relationships he had with certain individuals in his uh close environment if you like and uh that was the reaction i got and i mean it was incredibly exasperating humiliating um, irritating upsetting you know all of those things within the first you know so i i, I felt uh, immediately that i uh, that i i wasn't welcome there in a sense you know i, I mean i they didn't want my help but I didn't leave them up, you know. I went back again the next night and I spoke to another officer, and um, and then certain things happened. An attempt was made to get me out of London by ringing up my sister-in-law's home and telling the police I was getting in the way of the investigation. And then I, and then, <laughs> and then I found out a little while afterwards who had sent that message. And then I just knew, you know, I knew that things were going very badly, very badly wrong. But this is Britain, right? And this is what I always say, you know, I mean, if you if you if you if you got serious concerns about the police and you go along to your to anybody, well that's how it was with me then, and started talking about that and it was like people were aghast, you know, mm. that you could even imagine that kind of thing. Oh, you know, it was another a different world to a certain extent, right? In in terms of public perception. But now, I see the same kind of, how shall I put it, bad manners, right? Mm -hmm. Putting it no worse than that, bad manners from the British state. And it's just, well, you know. Well, let's, let's move on to something which I think goes a bit further than bad manners, because this was one of the details that really shocked me. And it was that you have Sid Fillery, who was originally a senior investigating officer on the case. He was a sergeant on the case, right? A sergeant. And a sergeant is a very central figure on, a, on, a, on an, any investigation. You know, he's controlling the troops on the ground, if you like, if you see what I mean. He's in a position of authority and significant power on a, on a murder investigation. Yeah? So how did he go from that central position of authority, as you describe it, to then becoming co-director of Daniel's private investigations firm. What was the process that happened there? Well, I mean, it was astonishing, let's say that, you know. I mean, uh, we were absolutely blown away by watching this uh, circus going on, you know. It was, it was, well, it was shocking. I laugh now at the, at the you know, grossness of it in a way and the stupidity of it and all the rest of it. But, the arrogance, you know, the all those things. But that's what we got. And it didn't matter who we talked to or who we complained about or who. And I mean, I 
been unable to give you details in, in certain instances hitherto, um, Ash, right? But, you know, people I would could speak to and join all of the dots together and say, look at this, this is you know, it's crazy for goodness sake. You know, I mean, are you gonna let this kind of stuff go on? And, you know, no, go please, please tell us this is an exemplary investigation, you know, this kind of huffy, hoity-toity English um, conviction that nothing could possibly be wrong, you know, that kind of, uh, that's the mentality of the people that you were dealing with. And I mean, it was, uh, it was, <laughs> it was upsetting to say the least, but you know, you, you can't, you can't make people react or you can't make them see if they don't want to or if there are reasons why they don't want to acknowledge it. One of the things that's astonishing about this case is that there have been five police investigations. And during one of these investigations in 2008, five people, I think, face charges. Uh, there were four suspects um, in terms of the uh, conspiracy to murder. And there was Sid Fillory, I think, being charged with uh, perverting the course of justice. Now, all of these charges then collapsed. Um, none of them re resulted in convictions. How did, how and why did that happen? Was it because the evidence they were being charged on was flimsy or was there something else going on in terms of the reliability of the testimony uh, that secured those charges in the first place? Well, the, I mean, these are very difficult questions for me to answer. I mean, I do know that it was an agonizing, the pre-trial hearings went on for two and a half years, for two years, you know. We were told by the police in the beginning that they expected the defense to mount an abuse of process de uh, defense in the pre-trial and that the police expected to see that off in about three weeks. They, this is what we were told. But as the case evolved and all of the previous corruption, incompetence and mixtures of these elements were all brought before the court the defendants were all saying well look it's all corrupt this is corrupt that's corrupt everything's corrupt blah 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 you know and uh, because the police had admitted corruption then uh, everything was corrupt you know so that the way it had been handled from the very beginning was was deep a deeply disturbing and b you know, I, I mean, it, what it did was it virtually ensured that no future corruption or any future corruption, any future prosecution would be extremely difficult. I mean, I think active steps were taken early on to make sure that that would be the case. You know, this is my own view of it, you know. So I just want to move on a little bit to the involvement of the press, because as I said earlier in the introduction, this is a case which touches on almost every aspect of public life in this country. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the role that the News of the World had in the investigations into Daniel's murder. I mean, I think at this point, I, I need to correct a small detail of what you said early on, and that was that Daniel and his partner made a living for 
when they, you know, when Daniel was alive, made a living from selling stories to the press. Well, I don't know how far Jonathan Rees might have done that at that time. I mean, this is what the panel has been looked into, but that was certainly not Daniel's MO, if you like. He was a private investigator. He investigated uh, car ringing gangs and insurance frauds and this kind of thing. That was what he did. He, I think, through his partner, he came into contact with a lot of police officers. Now, my brother was never a fan of the police. You know, he 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 came into contact with them quite a lot. But I remember him saying to me very shortly before he was killed in his office. He, I was with him alone in his office at the time in Thornton Heath, and he said to me. The discussion went round, came round to corrupt pockets, pockets. and he said to me, he, he, he went up to the window, he looked out of the window, and I could see he was chewing his lower lip, which he did when he was stressed, you know, it was like a stress thing that he used to do. And I said, what's the matter, Dan? And he said, Alistair, they're all over the place down here. This is what he, he was talking about, the police, corruption, right? He said, Alistair, they are all over the place down and then he complained on the Sunday before his murder to some colleagues or friends in the Aston he no the Austin Healy club because his hobby was restoring old sports old classic cars you know that's what his relaxation was for him, you know and um, he complained he he told them about he was that he was worried about corruption i won't go into detail but he was worried about yeah he was worried about his partner and then he came back on the Sunday before he was murdered, I think. If, no, that this was the Sunday before he was murdered at the car club. On the Thursday, the preceding Thursday, he'd come home, parked his car, and there was an old lady who, they had an old lady neighbour, and uh, they used to look after her cats or something if she went away, that kind of thing, right? And uh he said oh uh, hello doris or something she he was getting out of his car and she was in the garden or something he said hello doris how are you and she you know the conversation short conversation ensued and he said you'll never guess what i've found out today doris he said and he said all police are bastards was what he said and then you know he was dead dead a couple of days later dead you know i mean uh and then of course, the allegations of police involvement, which I had nothing to do, you know, I didn't make those allegations. Even though early on I began to, to suspect this, right? I'd begun to suspect this very early on in the first investigation. And of course, that is a very scary uh, feeling. You know, you think, God, what do I, you know, what have I got? Myself? You know, what, what, where am I here? You know, how, how did I get here? And uh, that's, but that's what it was, you know. So one of the one of the people we've mentioned is Jonathan Reese, who was his business partner. Um, and by the time of of Daniel's murder, it the relationship had broken down. It was very yeah. adversarial, it seems. Yeah. Um, just to familiarise our audience with Jonathan Reese, let's talk about him a little bit more. In the 
In the year 2000, Jonathan Rees was found guilty of conspiring to plant cocaine on an innocent woman in order to discredit her in a child custody battle. He was sentenced to seven years imprisonment for attempting to pervert the course of justice. But then, after his release, he was hired by the then editor of the News of the World, Andy Coulson. Andy Coulson, you might know, went on to become the director of communications in Downing Street under David Cameron. And so using a network of corrupt police officers Reese's role was to obtain information on public figures, such as confidential data from bank accounts, telephone records, car registration details, and computers. And in the year 2011, Andy Coulson ended up having to resign over the phone hacking scandal, and he was then arrested by the Metropolitan Police. He was jailed for 18 months for his role in phone hacking. So what I want to ask you is, do you think that these links between police corruption, top journalists, and then the very highest levels of politics have been why successive governments have been so ineffective in A, tackling the worst practices of the tabloid press, and B, driving the investigation into your brother's death forward and securing some kind of resolution for it? Well, these, this is a huge question, isn't it? You know, mm. I'm hoping that the panel will provide more, shed more light on that. Uh, and uh, obviously, it it, 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 it it looms large, you know, for anyone. I mean, the, the, the tentacles of this case mm. creep everywhere. And uh, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I in the beginning, I knew something really terrible and bad was going on. But, you know, uh, over the years, as I've learned more about who is involved here either tangentially or whatever you know it just looks uglier and more <laughs> insanitary is probably the right word for it so this panel the daniel morgan panel was set up by theresa may way back in 2013 why do you think it's taken eight years for the report to see the light of day I, 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 it's very difficult for me to go into detail here because mm. I don't you know. There are some things that I know uh, that I can't legitimately talk about. But um, my perception has been that the Metropolitan Police have used every possible means of delaying, making it harder, you know, uh, for this panel to complete its work. That's been my own experience. And indeed, at one point, uh, I had to go to the mayor's office for crime policing and say to them, look, I mean, please uh, help us. We are, you know, we've come to it. The police are blocking the way here and they will not make uh, relevant decisions. They will not, uh, they're blocking the, progress in this panel, will you help us? And I think, you know, a sharp letter was written, possibly, I, uh, and some questions asked, and then miraculously the barriers uh, kind of disappeared on that particular case, on that particular instance. But I mean, it's, I'm sure that this has been going, I, you know, I can only speculate, but I mean, I do know of an instance that I cannot yet talk about, but uh, it's, yeah, undoubtedly the police have delayed the um, progress of this report. Well, Priti Patel has had it sitting on her desk for a few weeks now, and the panel expected that would be published within one working day of her getting it. So 
her reason for the delay was that it had to be vetted for reasons of, of national security. Do you buy that explanation? No. No, first of all, the, the, the panel is led by a very experienced person in the form of Baroness Nulo alone, who's led, who was the police ombudsman in Northern Ireland and conducted an inquiry into the Omaha bombings over there. And I mean, national security would be something that she would naturally be pretty au fait with, with her background in, 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 a, in a kind of dangerous and place like Northern Ireland. And first, first of all is that, then the, the fact that the panel has independent legal advice, right? It has a QC to whom it can go and say, look, we want to know about the legalities of this and that, or what's your take on this? What's your view on this, you know? And thirdly, the, the, the fact that the government, that, it, that, that, that they were using the government's best known um, legal firm in terms of public inquiries. The government has, there's a legal firm called Field Fisher who handle huge or have handled large numbers of public inquiries. And they are also advisors to, you know, the panel that they can go to them for advice. And the idea that national security or Article 2, that is the right to life in the European Convention on Human Rights, that's Article 2, um, it, it, it means that, you know, they have to be cautious about endangering anyone by what they write in the, in their report, you know, and that those, in fact, the police uh, had five senior officers working on it for uh, 10 days or something, looking at, or looking for this sort of uh, um, fault, you know, p potential fault. And, it, you know, and I mean, I don't think Pretty Patel is even a lawyer. So, I mean, I don't know where she's getting these sort of bizarre uh, views or yeah, and I mean, what she's done, the way she's handled this, intervening at the last minute, mm. you know, and and then not seeming to have any idea what she's been doing while she's, it just arouses further suspicion. You know, you can't, it's unavoidable. You think, well, I'm now, my biggest concern now is that people other than those who are legally entitled to see the report now may be looking at it you know it may be in their hands i don't know and it, it invites it, she, she invites this kind of suspicion through her cack-handed actions well, i mean you've also been going through this process for you know 34 years now yeah and one of the things that really struck me is is what that must do to you in terms of your faith in institutions oh. so from your perspective, what do you think the report has to cover in order for it to have credibility in your eyes? Um, it has to cover all of the issues that we've been talking about in a coherent and probing and questioning and, you know, scrutinising way. And, uh, it's huge. I mean, this report is, as a, you know, as I say, it's a 1,200-page report. And we're being asked, you know, just as a by-the-by now, we're being asked to 
get to a certain venue at a early-ish on the morning of the 15th, you know, and we'll have a sort of couple of hours briefing and maybe an hour or two to look at the report, this vast report, yeah, and then be expected to comment on it in a, in a relatively coherent way before the press that same day, virtually, you know, and I mean, we're currently trying to negotiate better, you know, more time for us to absorb what, what's being said there. But uh, I don't think we haven't had much, um, uh, you know, like, hey, give us a publish it a couple of hours later in Parliament and give us a couple more hours to, you know, to look at it and absorb what it, what, what it says to it, to, a, to the degree that you can in such a short space of time, you know. But I think they're, they, they don't seem to be very kind of helpful. They've never been, you know, this British state. I mean, apart from ordering this inquiry, mm. uh, the British state has been a pain in the neck, you know, most of the time for, the, for those, these 34 years. I mean, and I suppose it's a same story played out with Hillsborough or Grieve. Yeah everything the Lawrence family got yeah. put through um, in the investigation of Stephen Lawrence's murder. One thing that I really want to say is that there's a lot of love and support for you, Alistair, in the chat from our viewers this evening. Well, thank you. And one of the things that um, I know people have been wanting to ask is how can they help in the family's ongoing campaign to secure justice for your brother? I mean, there are so many ways they can engage on social media, they can engage by say ringing their MP or writing to their MP and wanting to say, look, you know, uh, uh, you should be looking hard at this, you know, keep Patel on, you know, pretty Patel on, 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 you know, on her toes with what she's been doing here. Because, you know, uh, what I've seen is this, you know, miasma of suspicion and uh, develop all around these institutions and it just is not a healthy environment it's not an environment that i want to be in or to think of as being my, the way my home country operates you know it's a very uncomfortable and unpleasant feeling you know the sooner i feel more happy about what's going on here you know as far as well, this is for me of course and, and a lot of other people too the, the sooner we feel more at ease and more confident in our government and our institutions, the better. It can't come soon enough for me. Well, Alistair, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And as I said, this is a huge case. It touches on practically every facet of public life from government to the police to the press. And if you want to find out more about this story, and I really encourage you to find out more, as we said before, make sure to read Alistair's book, Untold, or listen to the podcast form. The report is due to come out next uh, Tuesday, the 15th of June. So keep an eye out for that as well. I'm sure we'll be covering it on Tisky Sour. Please let us know your thoughts in the comments below. We will be talking about this, as I said, again next week once the report is released. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you very much. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.